We live in really interesting times, don't we? I think it's fascinating. And um, I suppose, to be honest, there's a flip side, which is, do you feel as if we're on a bit of a deja vu? It's kind of going on and on and on and on, and it's kind of rolling. And um, I'm going to use that word, which we kind of tried to hide from our messages over the past however many years, Brexit. It's an interesting kind of journey that we're on. Just want to remind ourselves that in another hundred years, this will be an almost forgotten footnote. Doesn't time pass by? And all the things that seem so incredibly important to us now, in the scheme of things, are actually not that important. Because we live in a world of competing voices. It's really funny, isn't it, watching the BBC coverage, live coverage from outside the Houses of Parliament, and they'll bring on a politician of a particular voice or persuasion, and they'll be bringing their perspective, and then suddenly booming out from behind is that solitary voice that has been held, uh, heard right the way through this whole process, shouting out about um, some other perspective, a competing voice to the voice that the BBC were wanting to share with us. At the same time, during this past journey, us, like probably many of you, there have been punctuations in what seemed important with moments of realization of what is actually important. Two dear friends who have been hit with that terrible news that actually, imminently, this is the end for them. We live in our own, our own individual perspectives of importance. And then we are overwhelmed with that other news, that other perspective. So I want to ask us this afternoon, through this text, what is truly, really, above everything else, the thing that we need to hear? What voice above everything else do we need to hear? Because I think this text that we're looking at this afternoon captures the most important thing that we can know. And it also captures really the essence of the whole of this book that was written to this church in Colossae. This church which seems to us a distant memory and yet the experiences that they were going through in their lives, in their moment in history, seemed as incredibly important to them as the events that we are experiencing today. And in and amongst all of that, Paul speaks this voice into their experience. And he effectively says, above everything else, you need to hear this. So what is the voice that we need to hear? Well, it's in our reading and it's verse 27. 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles 
the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the biggest thing that we can hear. Greater than any other voice. If we understand it, if we comprehend what it means, and if we embrace it, it is the biggest news. It is the biggest message. It is the singularly most important statement that we can ever come to terms with. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, when I started to play around with, think through, dissect what those words were actually saying, there is a moment, isn't there, when it seems as though Jesus Christ actually becomes very small. Christ in you, he's saying. He's saying to this Colossian church. He's saying to us individually, Christ in you. And that makes Christ small in one sense, because Christ is in me. Surely, surely that, isn't, that can't make Christ small, can it? How, is it? how is Christ greater and bigger if He's in me? <laughs> and then it's the realization that He's actually in you. And he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you. And for everyone that Christ dwells within, he becomes greater and more superior than just being inside of me. What that does is it explains the very title that we've got for the whole of this series. It is our place in the Son. It is our place in Jesus. Him dwelling in us is actually really, truly us dwelling in Him. Because Jesus can't dwell in me and not in you. He dwells in all who truly believe. That is the greatest hope. Because it says that by Christ dwelling in me, I have the hope of glory. The hope of glory. That really struck me when I was considering the implications of what the news that my friends have heard over this past few weeks means for them. That actually, for those who believe, that for those who Jesus Christ dwells within, there is hope, no matter how bad the experience, no matter how shattering and desperate the issue. The hope of glory is the greatest news that we can hear in the midst of mortal threat. Decaying bodies, decaying minds, Decaying world, decaying relationships, decaying experiences. Do you feel as if sometimes it is falling apart around you? The BBC has produced some astounding 
programming over the past few years in a series which has that iconic voice of David, David Attenborough, uh, voiceover, vo giving the voiceover for these incredible programs describing the world that we live in. I saw an inter read an interview that he, was, he gave this past few weeks where he said that in the past, going back there, we were described as cranks <laughs> when we talked about the threat to the environment. And now, most of us are looking at the world around and saying, no, it truly, truly is crumbling away. It's falling apart. It's decaying. It won't decay, probably, in your lifetime or my lifetime. But the message of Jesus is that the hope, there is a hope of glory. That it won't stay the way it is in this downward spiral. That Jesus brings not just individual hope or human hope. He brings creation hope. It's a new series coming on. Seven Worlds with David Attenborough. I just wish that he could share the same hope that this beautiful, incredible creation of God will be redeemed. That there is hope in Christ. It's the greatest news that we can hear. And so this afternoon, I just want to say five things about this glory. Just go through them, looking at our text. So I've picked out one verse from fairly near the middle of our text, which talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does the rest of it say about this glory? First thing I want to say is that this glory is never achieved without suffering. This glory is never achieved without suffering. Look at what it says in verse 24. This is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, and he says this, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. That's, that's a huge thing to say, isn't it? He's saying, I rejoice in my suffering. And then he goes on to say something, which in, on the face of it, it looks blasphemous, <laughs> to be honest. Because he goes on to say, And I fill up in my flesh, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? If you know anything of the story of the Bible, this story of salvation, there is this overwhelming message that the suffering of Jesus is the sufficient think. It's a the sufficient thing. And yet Paul goes on to say, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. You say, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say something so seemingly contrary to everything else in the Bible which says that Jesus' suffering is sufficient? I think it works like this. The church is here to truly 
display the great news of the suffering of Jesus. But generally, the way that suffering is described and proclaimed is because the church suffers too. And Paul is saying, you are looking at me and you are looking at my suffering and my suffering is here to say to you that the suffering of Jesus is supreme. And I'll suffer for the sake of that. It's like this living visual aid. Paul's saying, look at me. I am suffering because the suffering of Jesus is worth suffering for because it's the best news that you can ever hear. And I will do absolutely anything that I can. I will endure anything. I will experience anything for the sake of this great news. Do you know what? Since Paul said that time and time and time again, that has been proved true. On the macro scale, there have been countries which have oppressed the message of Jesus. And people have suffered horrendously, terribly. And the outcome of that is that many more people have believed. <laughs> because people have looked on and said, is that really worth suffering for? The story goes of a family who had real close friends who didn't know Jesus. And they really wanted them to know Jesus. They prayed that they might, no matter what experience they had to go through, that they would know Jesus. Within a relatively short time, the family who had prayed that endured some terrible losses and some devastating sickness in their family. As their neighbors looked on at them going through that very experience, and they saw that their faith was not rocked, but was actually deepened by that very experience, one day they said to them, we want what you've got. We want to have that kind of hope and they came to faith in Jesus. That is what Paul is talking about here. I am the living embodiment of the worth and value of the suffering of Jesus. Second thing, this glory is so colossal, God is prepared to reveal it over millennia. Look at verse 25 and 26. I've become this servant to this message by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What he's saying is, do you realize what you are hearing? Do you realize that the great message of Jesus, this thing which... He describes it as a mystery. And what he's saying is that God was prepared for that unfolding of his plan in Jesus to take 
hundreds and hundreds of years to be fully realized. Hundreds of years. All of the Old Testament is building up to the moment of Jesus. From Jesus, right the way through the rest of the New Testament, there is the unfolding of what Jesus has done. And for us here today, there is another 2,000 years since Jesus and the further unfolding of precisely what Jesus says will happen that His message will reach the whole of the world. And God says that this message is so important, I'm prepared to take that kind of time for you to see it. In the clamoring voices that we experience in this world, I want you to compare the patience of God to the soundbite mentality that we have today. A soundbite, a moment of information, a clamoring something that says, listen to me. And against those voices that jump out at us, we have this steady, consistent unveiling of God's message to us throughout history that says, in the light of all of that, listen to me. Number three, this glory is not a single event in our lives. It is the beginning of a maturing change. It's not just a single thing. It's the beginning of a life change. Look at what Paul says in 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. What's he saying? He's saying, do you know what? Our job is to share the depth of Jesus with you. So you don't stay little kids in the message of Jesus, but you grow up. What does growing up do? What, what does growing up generally do? Well, gen what we sometimes say about the patterns of some behaviors of some people is they've just not grown up. That's what we say, don't we? They've just not grown up. They're carrying on being behaving in a stupid way the way they used to behave as kids. And you're, you're tearing your hair out thinking, will you grow up? What Jesus is saying is precisely the same to us. Your spiritual life, you need to grow up. And what growing up does is it changes us. The things that we once were, we no longer are. Because we have been changed by this maturing knowledge of Jesus. You know, sometimes we can make that sound like some boring academic journey of theological understanding. And when we do that, we, we strip the message of Jesus of all of its power, I think. But when we explain the vibrant life change 
that can go on by deeper knowledge of Jesus that changes us deeper and deeper and deeper, then we're revealing a growing up that is the most thrilling experience that we can have this side of eternity. Because what we begin to understand is the depth, how valuable that hope of glory is. You know, I, I, when I first became a Christian, whenever that was back then, and I'm not really sure when it was, but I know it was back there, and I know I was young. And I just thought, I'm going to heaven. It's great. But now, I realize how, how immature that was back there. There is so, so, so much more that thrills me, that delights me, that challenges me, that confronts me. He says we admonish. Do you know what? I need the message of Jesus to confront me, to stand right in my face, eyeball to eyeball, and to not back down until I bend my knee. That's what I need the message of Jesus to do with me. Because I need to be changed. And that's what the message of Jesus is willing to do when we engage with it. We grow up. Number four. Oh, let me go back. I want you to compare that kind of change, that kind of embracing of change from the self-centered attitudes that our age tends to give us. Everything is about us. Everything is about what we want, what satisfies us, what satisfies our experiences, what makes us feel good. And we're in a downward spiral of seeking the us and never finding the us. And Jesus says, when you take your eyes off you and look to me, you will find that you will be reaching up, not sinking down. Number four now. This glory uses encouragement and love to reveal Jesus. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a big sentence, isn't it? And honestly, we could spend the next month just looking at that little bit of the Bible. We really could. And there's times when you're preparing to speak about the message of the Bible and you look at some bits of text and you think, do you know what, I am not even going to get close to what this is saying. But let me just pick out one thing. The message of the Bible, the message of Jesus, is supposed to encourage us, not discourage us. That's what it says. Encourages our hearts. 
You know, sometimes we can make the message of the Bible discouraging. (laughs) It's meant to encourage us, and it's meant to form in us love. Jesus said to His disciples, by this, all men that will know that you are My disciples, because you love one another. Because you love one another. You will be known as disciples because you love one another. Let me say right now that the church has done a tremendous job of disowning that statement. We've done a tremendous job of disowning that statement. Over the centuries, we have lost the heart of love. My prayer for this church, for this gathering of God's people, is that we would be so moved by knowing Jesus that we would love each other. Warts and all. Do you know what? We often say, don't we, that um, there is an unconditional love for our own children or those who are very closest to us that they almost couldn't do anything (laughs) and we'd still love them. And we see that worked out again and again and again in the lives of people who do terrible things and yet they're still loved. I actually think that that's at the heart of what is being talked about here. That the love we extend is that kind of love. A love which is ultimately self-sacrificing. I will be ripped to shreds in my love for you. Why? Because that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. Jesus is the very source of all knowledge and wisdom. That's what this text says, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And at the heart of that wisdom and knowledge is encouragement and love. Compare that with the messages that we hear that are temporary, unstable, revealing how our human love can be so weak and failing. Messages which shout out to say, listen to me, I love you to the moon and back as long as And Jesus says, I will love you to death. That's the love that is revealed in this glory. Fifthly, this glory is so precious that you and I are at risk of deception. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But look at what it says in verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit in delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. 
Paul's saying. In fact, he, he's, he's partly lifting the curtain from the great battle which wages for the souls of men and women. He's saying this, the evil personified which the Bible describes hates you so much that you will be deceived from embracing this glory. That's how colossal the battle is. You will be deceived. So hold fast to this message of the glory of Jesus, supreme above everything else. Don't sway. Don't waver. Have this as your foundation. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. Because this is the hope of glory. Now our task in this church, as in every church that shares the message of Jesus, is simply to point, as Paul did, to Jesus. That's all we can do. You know, I'm really encouraged that uh, we have no other strength than that. Because if it relied on our ability to persuade people, there would be nobody entering into heaven. But look at what Paul says in verse 20, 29. To this, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's saying, the things that I am doing are not my strength, they're Christ's strength in me. Every single person who has come to faith is because Jesus has worked. Every single person in this church who has come to faith is because Jesus has worked. Now, just to close, unless God is astoundingly generous, astoundingly generous, some of us here will believe and some of us here will not believe. Some will have the hope of glory and will embrace it. Some will have the hope of glory explained and will reject it. Some will have the hope of glory drowned out by other temporary voices. Next week is a baptismal service. What is that? It's a moment in the life of the church where individuals who have embraced this Christ and this hope of glory are able to say without words but by action that I am buried and live in Jesus. That's what it is. And so I want to say at the end of this afternoon, if that is you, and you have not made that statement that you love and embrace Jesus and that you have come to faith, I want to encourage you to, 
to be baptised. To say, that's me. That's where I am. That is my hope. That is what I now believe. Because the glorious riches of the mystery of Jesus is that He dwells within us. And this is our hope.